This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. From that point on, when I had a bad day at a racetrack, I'd go home and I'd watch that replay. I knew that I was complete, but now I was, and now I was a race car driver. It was an honor to take the deal, but it's also it was a huge disappointment two weeks after. I says, when you get the motor out, stop by my house and grab my balls because that's going to be the difference. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. And yes, that was Steve Wade. And because of some sound tutorial... <laughs> that we got this morning from our buddy Todd Phillips. You can now hear Steve hopefully a little bit better. What did you think about that, Steve? I didn't know what I was doing, but I followed my instructions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm glad our listeners couldn't hear your eyes roll. <laughs> you were like, what in the world is this guy saying? 
He's well, speaking Greek. <laughs> I, I admit my eyes did roll, but I tried to follow my instructions. Like I said, <laughs> I guess I did okay. <laughs> Steve, this week in our first segment, we're going to share the second of what's going to be three installments of our interview with Kevin LePage. And this week, Kevin talks about winning the very first race of his Bush Series career and a stint with Roush Racing that started out with a lot of promise that wound up pretty doggone rocky. Well, Kevin didn't have a real good go at it, that's for sure. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the November 7th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup Scene. This was another issue where the Winston Cup circuit had an off weekend, but this issue did feature a package of stories on the championship battle between Hendrick Motorsports teammates, Terry Labonte and Jeff Gordon, and how much or how little their crew chiefs, Gary Dehart and Ray Evernham worked together. Well, it's an interesting situation. You had two guys on the same team fighting for the championship. Now that gets to be a pretty tense situation when you are teammates. What do you do on the track against each other? How do you behave and how do the crew chiefs prepare the cars and what information, if any, do they share? And Kevin LePage won the standalone Bush Series race at Homestead with the championship going to Randy LaJoy. And finally, in this issue, I had a column that ticked off an autograph seeker or two. <laughs> <laughs> I ticked off a reader? Surely not. <laughs> and Steve, this week, we actually got some PayPal support from William Smith in memory of team owner Alan Dillard. Huh. Now, I don't know what the connection is there. I don't know if there was a connection or if. William just really respected Alan or what, but we did receive a donation from William in memory of Alan. So I thought that was pretty cool. So listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. That support is crucial to what we're doing. Without it, we wouldn't be able to produce this podcast. Please consider it if you possibly can. If you can do it, a monthly show of support, no matter how big or small, a dollar, a hundred dollars, whatever, doesn't matter. We would appreciate anything. That address is patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this podcast is not associated in any way with American city business journals, owner of the same brand. Vermont teddy bear went away at the end of the 95 season. Yep. How difficult a position did that put you in for the following year? 96? Um, it was very difficult, you know, because we were just, um, just starting, you know, 95 was, uh, a, a breakthrough year. I think we only went home from one or two races. We, we sent home, uh, drivers like Dale Earnhardt and, and Dale Jarrett at Richmond. And we qualified like 22nd or something like that. It was um, it was very sad. I mean, because we um, in 1995 towards the I think it was the fall Dover race. I knew we I knew that they were thinking of leaving, and I said probably one of the best ways we could do this is if we could get an Earnhardt bear, a GM Goodwrench Earnhardt bear, because the marketing people up there loved the idea. What happened was in 95, John Santino, Sorrentino decided to go public. So now you got to deal with board members. They weren't really happy with NASCAR. So we figured if we could get an Earnhardt bear, that would just put us over the edge. So they, um, they built me a bear. We talked to Teresa uh, Earnhardt about meeting at Dover to present it to them and to see if we could, you know, sell the deal because I knew that they were going to want some commission, you know, being, you know, a souvenir sale. But we said, well, let's just see what we can do. Well, Saturday morning, she canceled on me. Um, next thing you know, a few weeks later, you know, Vermont Teddy Bear says, we're not coming back. November 1st, uh, Teresa calls and said, where's that Earnhardt bear? We want to see it. I called back up to the factory and um, they said the board's already made their mind. No matter what you do, they're not 
they're not going to go back to NASCAR. So throughout the winter, um, we chased money. We chased money real hard. Um, again, for two years, I really didn't do a whole lot, so it was hard for me to get a door open. So I, uh, I looked at my team, and I said, um, I'm going to run the first seven races before our two-week break. We're going to push hard, and if we can't get a sponsor, then we'll shut down. It was tough, I mean, because I, did, I didn't know what to do, you know. We were at Atlanta, and I, I either got caught up in a wreck or blew up or something. I'm in the trailer, uh, and this is 96. I'm getting ready to get out of my uniform, and all of a sudden I look out the door, and there goes Pete Orr with four shocks in his hands. Pete Orr was driving the 88 car at the time. And I'm like, man, I didn't hear no caution or anything. They're still racing out there. I don't know what's going on. And just about the same time I was thinking about that, I looked at the side door, and, and David Ridling was there. And he goes, can you come drive my car? <laughs> and I said, well, what's wrong? He goes, well, um, Pete says it's it's evil. He can't drive it. So I said, sure. So, um, so, you know, so he was taking his shocks and going home. Yeah, he was going to go rebuild them or something. I don't know what okay, he was doing. Okay, all right. Okay, okay. he, he yeah. was going to build a car, rebuild a car during, during yeah. the race. So, um, you know, obviously Pete was a tall, slender guy, and here I am, you know, being five foot nine, you know, and so, so he was talking about driving it in that race. Oh yeah, he, he, was, he wasn't talking about for the races. No, so, he okay. said this is. I need you to practice car, right? Okay, or, or you know, go out and drive the car in the racetrack. See what's going on. Now, was this in practice or the race? Race. This race. Is during okay, the race. That's what I thought you said. Okay. So um, um, I go up and I sit the car and they adjust the steering wheel for me, you know, and, and we got everything, seat belts. So David, as I'm going down pit road, David said, now take it easy. You know, get used to this thing because I don't want you to get hurt, right? I said, no worries. So I take off down pit road and I make up, get up the speed on the back stretch, and all of a sudden the spotter goes, leaders off, off two. I just kept driving a race car. All of a sudden, David comes over about four laps later. He goes, what do you think? And I was like, I wish my car would drive like this. He goes, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. He says, you're pulling away from the leader with the same amount of laps on the tires. I said, you want me pit? He goes, hell no, finish the damn race. So I finished the race. We were 25 laps down or whatever it was. So um, the last race of the seven races was Bristol. I'm loading up knowing that it was my last race. And all of a sudden, on the, again, at the side door, um, uh, Ray Smith from Chevrolet and David Redling standing at the door. And they're like, what, what are you doing now? And I was like, I have no idea. I'm done. And uh, Ray says, David wants to meet you tomorrow about driving the 88 car. I go over Sunday morning at their race shop, and we talked. And um, I said, what happened? He goes, halfway through the race at Bristol, Pete came in. He said, I need to beat you at the back of the holler. And um, David's like, man, I didn't see him hit the wall or anything. What's going on? The motor blew up or whatever. And Pete got out of the car, went in the lounge, and says, I can't do this anymore. Wow. So um, between Ray Smith from Chevrolet and, and David, you know, they they took me from the LePage Motorsports to – Camel Page driver. What kind of a relationship did you and David have? You know, the first year um, we had a great relationship. Yeah. We we should have won a handful of races. Uh, we run second at Michigan. Purvis was on a fuel mileage, and we were running them down. I mean, it. it I think I caught him at the at start finish line. I mean, if it had been another lap, I'd have beat him. You know, we obviously won at Homestead. I mean, we won. We should have won that year half a dozen races. Either a bad pit stop, you know, something um, stupid happened, you know, but we had some really good races. Unfortunately, and I wish I wish David would have, I wish we probably wouldn't have won Homestead because once we won Homestead, David got greedy and started a second team, brought in Lance, crackers with Dennis Setzer before you know it. I mean, he was short on money because the hype deal fell apart. And uh, so he's bringing in investors 
And then the investor said, hey, the only way I'm going to do it is if my son can drive. And next thing you know, I'm running a part schedule and get, you know, get, got fired. I mean, it was just, um, just a snowball effect. And it ended up destroying the race team, you know, because he didn't know how to manage the two car team. We remain friends, you know, after. And, um, and I actually, unfortunately, David right now has got some issues. He's in jail and, yeah. Is he real? Yeah. Yeah. He got, uh, got caught doing some funny stuff and with money and he's in uh, prison right now. 50, let's see, I'm 59. So he's 58 years old, 59 years old. Yeah. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. Going back to Homestead, you won, but not only did you win the first race of your Bush series career, you also beat Bobby Labonte and Mark Martin to the finish line to do it. What do you remember about that race, specifically about that race? Um, uh, several things. Um, it, it actually was um, a great highlight of my career, a day that made me smile for a lot of, lot of, lot of hours. From that point on, when I had a bad day at a racetrack, I'd go home and I'd watch that replay of the race. Would you really? And listen to Ken Squire and uh, Ned Jarrett, you know, call it. We had a fast Chevy that day. We, I think we were like 12th, 15th in qualifying, and you know, just happened to drove up to the front, come in, lose about 10, 15 spots, do it all over again. Probably one of the coolest things that Ned said is when I was passing Bobby Labonte, uh, Ken Squire was talking, shocking. And uh, he says, Ken, he says, uh, he said, Bobby Labonte just ran a tenth faster than he qualified. He said, that's unheard of. And I, uh, I was, while I was being passed, while he was being passed, well, about four laps later, Ned comes over to radio or TV and he goes, Ken. He said, I hate to reiterate this, but he says, Kevin LePage just ran three tens faster than a pole speed leading this race. I mean, a car was on a rail. And, you know, at the end, you know, to be in victory lane, beating, you know, Bobby and Mark and Nemechek was fourth, I believe. I knew that it was, I was complete. And now as and now as a race car driver, that night we went out to dinner. Uh, took the team out to dinner. All of a sudden, this large cake come over, and I said, "Well, I didn't order any dessert or anything, you know." And it says, "Congratulations, Kevin, on your win." And I said, "I didn't order it." And they said, "No, that guy over there did." And, he, and out walking out the door is Jack Roush. No kidding. And that was where the beginning where he started watching me. You talked about parting ways with David late the next season. You moved to 19, uh, 1998. You did move to Winston Cup with Joe Falk. Was that just part of the overall plan, or did he come to you with a specific offer? Uh, actually, it started in 97. Okay. Uh, Joe came to me. And in, in, uh, I think halfway through the 97 season, he had started the season with Mike Wallace with Spam. Uh, Spam dropped him. They were struggling, not making races. I said, uh, we want you to drive our car at New Hampshire. I said, all right. And it might have been 97 that I left David. I guess it would. I guess yeah, that would be yeah, the following year. Yeah. So uh, we're up in New Hampshire, and um, we're about mid-pack. So we get ready to qualify. I nailed one and two. Nailed it. And the reason I know I nailed it because I got the the practice sheet or the you know the segment sheet after I was third fastest. Well, when you're going through one and two that fast, you carry all that momentum getting into three and four, and I overshot the corner, missed the race. So Joe called me the following week, and he goes, I hate that you missed the race, but you ran so good. 
He says, we're going to go test at Charlotte. And you test good down there. We're going to, we're going to go back for the race. I said, all right. So we go down to Charlotte. Doug Rikers, my crew chief. Clyde Booth is our engineer. And I'm out there kind of floundering around. You know, again, it's the first time in a cup car at a mile and a half, you know, super speedway. And uh, all of a sudden, Clyde says, I'm going to go down in one and two. And when you hear me say now, I want you to lift and jump on the brakes. When you hear me say now, I want you to get off the brake and step on the gas. It's all right. So I go down into one now, now. I was like, wow. I said, that, that caught me off guard. He goes, that's what you need to do. I said, all right. So we go out and we make another run. Four tenths. He goes, all right. He says, you got one and two figured out now. Let's go to three and four. Same thing. So he goes, all right. Doug, he said, I think he's ready to do a qualifying mock-up run. So we put tires on, taped it up, and uh, we go out top of the board. 26 cars there, and we're at the top. All of a sudden at 8.55, because we stopped practice at 9, 8.55, Ryan Newman goes out and beats me by half a tenth with Penske equipment. Yeah. Joe says, we're going back for the race. So we go back for the for the race, and um, I qualified 12th, I think it was. Saturday morning, we go out, we're doing a you know practice session. We take our qualifying motor out, put our race motor in. Third lap on the racetrack, I drive off into turns one, and that thing turned around as fast as it could shake a stick. Killed the car. Come to find out, Nemechek was driving for Felix at the time, and they had just changed the rear end gear, and, and they never put the rear end plug back in. His first lap on the racetrack, he all down the racetrack right in front of me. So we didn't have a backup car. Felix felt bad, so they went to the shop and got a car, which was the 42 first union car that, um, what's the name? Wally Dollenbach was racing, and he missed the race. So we, they went and got it, brought it back, and we got our seat in it and fixed it up. That was the most ill-handling race car we ever, I ever was in. I mean, it was horrendous. But, you know, they gave us a car. And so that performance alone, then I think we went to Atlanta, and we ran good Atlanta. So that performance alone, Joe Fock, Doug Riker, Clyde Booth, and myself, we formed a team to start the 98 season. And when I went to Daytona, I went down for the rookie meeting. Jerry Nadeau, Steve Park, um, Kenny Irwin, and I think there was a couple of other guys in there. And then I walked in. And they said, um, are you here for what? I said, I'm here to run for Rookie of the Year. And everybody like, who are you? You know, they didn't know who I was. And uh, the season started. About midway through that year, in a two-week session, I had phone calls every day. John Hendrick from Hendrick Motorsports want me to drive the 25 car. Richard Childress wanted me to drive one of their cars. Doug Yates wanted me to drive one of their cars. Uh, Jack Roush, Joe Gibbs, JD called me. I mean, it was like every day somebody wanted me to drive one of their cars. But it was always for the 99 season. It wasn't for 98, except for Jack Roush. Jack says, we'll put you in a car starting the fall Michigan race. So we were out in Sonoma, which was, I think, three or four weeks before the Michigan race. I met, sat down with Joe Falk, and I said, um, hey, I just want to let you know um, that I'm going to be leaving you in three or four weeks, you know, whenever the Michigan race is, so you can you know, look for another driver. And the decision I made, reason I made that decision was, um, at Atlanta in the spring race, Steve Parker hurt. And Dale Earnhardt asked me to drive that one car. Met with him. I said, what are, what are you paying your driver? And he told me what it was. And I'm like, really? He goes, aren't you getting paid? I said, no, I just get a percentage. He goes, if somebody comes up to Joe with some money, you're out. 
I said, well, okay, you know. So I said, what's your plan? He goes, well, he said, once Steve gets better, which probably about three or four races from the end, Steve's going to get back into one car. I said, well, I said, that doesn't work for me. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you only run for rookie of the year one time. I said, if you pull me out of the car in five weeks to go, four weeks to go, I may lose it. And he goes, I'll put a second car together for you. He said, but you got to give me an answer before noon tomorrow. So I was on my way to Martinsville, and I called Ricky Rudd. I called Terry Labonte. I I called a handful of guys, and I was like, look, this is my position. And they looked at me, and they said, 50 cents and loyalty won't buy you a cup of coffee nowadays. Worry about yourself. So I called Dale about 11 o'clock, and he goes, and he said, if you would have given me an answer last night, he said, I know to call me today, but if you give me an answer last night, he said, I'd put you in that one car. But Penzel had pressured me so bad, and they put Daryl in the car. And that year, 98, Daryl used 27 out of 28 provisionals or something like that, you know, past champions. So um, I ended up taking the Roush deal. After swimming upstream for as long as you had and having one deal not turn out the way that you might have liked after another, what was it like to go to a team that was at the time one of the sports powerhouses? I mean, absolute powerhouse. Um, it was an honor to, to to take the deal, but it's also it was a huge disappointment. Two weeks after, I met with Jeff Smith up in uh, a little small restaurant outside of the Speedway up in Michigan. And Jeff, um, Jeff says, you know, we're going, we're, we're, I mean, we're an hour away. And he goes, I don't want anybody to know that we're talking, blah, blah, blah. I said, all right, no problem. So my wife came with me. She was my business partner, spotter, moral support. And I said, so how's, how does Roush Racing operate? And I said, simple. It's open book. We're five teams. You can go to the six car with Mark Martin, Jimmy Finney. You can go to Frankie Stoddard and Burton's. You can go to Johnny Benson, who was my teammate anyway. Or you can go to Chad Little's team. At any racetrack, ask Crucci for their setup book, uh, tire pressures, uh, shock bills, anything you want. I said, well, I said, that's exactly what I want is to be part of a team that it's a team effort. So I took the deal, and we go to Michigan, and we were we were pretty decent in the in the race. Uh, I've been in practice um, again, you know, never doing a lot of qualifying, you know, with some really good equipment. Um, I overdrove one and two, slid up the racetrack, ended up starting, I think, twenty eighth or something like that. I think I finished in the top fifteen. Next week we go to Bristol. They built me a brand new car. I mean, we. We ran a top 10 all night long, ended up 10th. Tuesday, we're up in Liberty, a normal meeting with Jack, and Jack comes in. He's got a smile from ear to ear. He goes, man, he said, this is unexpected. Because when Jack and I met to sign the contract, Jack looked at me and he goes, I think you're too young at 32 years old. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do the best job I can for you. So to finish 10th on my second cup race with them, you know, that was very impressive. Now, is that the weekend that you won? Uh, no. The Bush race? No. Okay. Uh, yes, it, yes, I think it was. I yeah. think I was running a channel lock car that day. Yeah, I think yeah. it was a combination. That was a yeah. good weekend. And so, all of a sudden, he goes, all right, guys, thank you. He said, oh, wait, driver, crew chief, team manager, stay. So, we hung around, and he goes, um, well, I just want to let you know there's uh, new rules in Roush Racing. And I look at him, and I'm like, what, what new rules? He goes, spring shocks and sway bar are confidential. Everything else is yours. And my crew chief at the time, James Ince, says, what are you talking about, Jack? He goes, well, some of the guys in the organization are thinking that we're handing everything to you, which they had to learn everything. So we're taking it away from you. And this is two races into your Two game. races into my, 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 my deal. I mean, James, I mean, I, um, luckily there was nothing near him to throw because he was getting ready to throw something. We, we struggled. 
we struggle as, as a group up there, Johnny and I, because we had to fend for ourselves. Throughout the three years I was there, um, there was times when Jack would come over to radio and, and say, hey, you need to slow down and let Mark lead a lap if I'm leading a race. Or um, you need to slow down, let Burton pass you, you're holding them up, and then I'd let him pass me, and I'd pass him back a couple laps later. And there was, there was so much animosity between Mark and Jeff against me that it was, it was frustrating to even go into the racetrack and, and try to be a teammate. We were at Charlotte for one of the races. I qualified six. Mark was like 12th, 15th. Burton was 20-something, and Johnny and Chad were in the back. I come out of the garage, and there's Burton and, and uh, Mark and Jack's ear. They're giving us the better motors. Well, our, my motors came out of Livonia, and, and Mark's and Jeff came out of Mooresville. So that weekend, um, that Saturday, uh, Friday, um, my crew chief at the time was Pat Trison. He had gotten married, but he hadn't had time to do a family get-together, so they were planning a big family get-together on Friday. Jack comes over, and he says, I need to take your motor out. We're taking it tomorrow. We're taking it over to the engine shop and dyno in. So I'm sitting there talking with Pat. Here comes Frankie's daughter. And Frankie knew that they had this big family get-together, and Frankie goes, Hey, uh, Pat, hope you ain't got nothing planned tomorrow. And as Frankie's walking out, I, as loud as I could yell, I didn't care. I said, hey, Pat, I says, when you get the motor out, stop by my house and grab my balls because that's going to be the difference. My motor was 12 horsepower down to both Mark's and Jeff's, but I beat him in qualifying. So several, several more incidents like that throughout my time with Roush uh, was disheartening. Didn't... Pat quit during a race at Bristol. Was that with you or was that with somebody else? That was somebody else. Pat, right. Pat right. left me. Um, our last race together with Roush was Atlanta. And that's when he went to the Wood Brothers. I went down to the shop to uh, clean out my office. I walked into the shop and I said, where's Pat? And like, uh, nobody wanted to tell me where. And I knew he was already gone up to Wood Brothers. And I said, well, where's my car? And they're like, it's up there on the, on the, on the uh, lift, car lift. No suspension, no motor, no running gear. And this is Tuesday. And they're like, oh, don't worry. Well, you know, we, we don't have to be there until Thursday night, right? So I go over Friday morning. Pat's back, you know, at the car. And, and um, next thing you know, Pat leaves. He's over to 21. So he's working both cars, right? So I go on the racetrack. And this is probably the second most evil car ever driven. And... Atlanta was, you know, one of my favorite racetracks where if you go back in records, probably my best finishing racetracks and qualifying. I think we were like 45th out of 45 cars. He worked a little bit on the car. I went back out, blew a motor. They come over with a spare motor and looked like they went to the local junkyard and got it. Somebody had already run it a thousand miles or whatever. I mean, it was horrendous. Put it in the car. We went out and missed the race. So... I'm in, in the, the 16 car. In the 16 car. Yeah. And earlier that year, they had a meeting uh, with Valvoline because Valvoline was leaving the six car. But yet, Valvoline had been the longest sponsor, you know, with the car with Jack. And they wanted to stay with me. Jack didn't, didn't want to take him, didn't want to keep him. And the only reason I know this is because I flew back from one, one of my appearances down the road with the um, guy from Valvoline. He told me the whole story. So not knowing the exact numbers, just hypothetically say it was, um, you know, a $15 million deal. Well, they wanted to pay $14 million because I'm not Mark Martin. You know, hadn't won a bunch of races and stuff, which to me is like, okay, we could run on that kind of money, right? They didn't want to do it. Jack didn't want to take it. And I think the reason they didn't want to take it because I think Jack didn't want Valvoline to talk to Pfizer about how, how how the marketing was going on, how the money was being spent and all that kind of stuff because Valvoline has been there for all these years, right? So uh, I'm in the holler cleaning out my locker and Jeff Smith comes up and, he go, and he's got a contract in, in his hand. He goes, you need to sign this. Because in Roush Racing, 
if by September 1st you don't get a release notice, your contract's still active to the following year. Well, I didn't get released because they were still working on monies, and um, they didn't get anything, so they shut down. And I was like, you can take that contract and put it you know where. I said, you just embarrassed me at one of my favorite racetracks. I said, screw you. So uh, about two, three weeks later, Jack calls me to meet at their office. And I go down there, and there's a contract with the paper, with a pen, and Jeff Smith's going on, and I told him to shove it up his butt. And, and uh, all of a sudden, Jack takes his hat off and sets it on the table, and he goes, do you own a couple Bush cars? I said, yeah. He goes, have you read my contract? So not word for word. He goes, well, he said, there's, an art, there's a paragraph in there that says, I have the right of first refusal to allow you to drive anything but a Roush performance car. He said, if you remember Steve Grissom, when he and Gary Bechtel split, he had a contract. Steve didn't, didn't want to get away from it. So Gary paid him, but he also didn't, put, didn't let him drive anything. I said, where is Steve Grissom now? He says, you'll go to the racetrack every week. He says, I guarantee I have a broom handle that'll fit them hands of yours. Ooh. <laughs> so, uh, needless to say, I signed a contract with him. The contract for the 90, for what season? That would have been for the uh, 2000 season. Okay. 99 was my last year, I think I was at Roush. Or 2001, whatever it was. Yeah, it was two, for the following yeah. year. So, about, I think a year or two later, uh, Jack's di- uh, dad died after after we split throughout the season because I was driving for Morgan McClure. When I met Jack in the garage area, he'd put his head down and he'd walk one way or the other. He would never meet me face to face. And so the day he is the week his dad died, I went over and Jack turned away from me and started walking away. And I walked over and I grabbed him and I said, "Hey man, sorry for your loss." And I said, "Your dad was a great man. I loved his dad. Dad was an amazing person." And he looked at me, and he goes, thank you, Kevin. And so I turned around and started walking away, and, and he grabbed me. He goes, I'm sorry. He said, I never gave you what I was supposed to give you. He said, I listened to too many people. He says, if you ever, ever need anything from me, look me up. I, I've always had so much respect for Jack. It's just the people underneath him that, I didn't have respect for it. So Vermont Teddy Bear goes away at the end of the 1995 season. And Kevin, at that point, being an owner-driver, is pretty much at the end of his rope. And he tells his team that they're going to run the first seven races in the 1996 season, but that's going to be it. and. Looking at the stats that year, just qualifying for a race was a feat in and of itself. At Daytona, 20 drivers missed the field, including Buckshot Jones, Tommy Houston, Kenny Wallace, Ward Burton, Tim Fedewa, and Mike Wallace. Now, in that event, Kevin qualified seven, but he was caught up in an early accident. At Rockingham, 16 drivers missed the cut, including Tony Stewart. How about that? (laughs) Good night, man. At Rockingham, 13 drivers failed to qualify. At Atlanta, 18 cars went home, including Robert Presley, Michael Waltrip, and Dale Jarrett. Again, how about that? (laughs) (laughs) I believe Dale Jarrett had just won that year's Daytona 500, and he's on the way home. From the Bush Series race at Nashville, 10 cars DNQ'd. 15 cars didn't make the starting grid at Darlington, including Joe Nemechek. And finally, at Bristol, which was the seventh race of the season, and it was Kevin's cutoff line for the rest of the year, 11 cars missed the cut. I got a slight explanation for all of these cars uh, going home. The entries that these races were at record high. Yeah. And I think one reason for that, if you recall, the mid-90s to 
you know, the early 2000s was NASCAR's boom years. You could not get away from NASCAR. It was everywhere. From, from television to the Kmart, you found NASCAR was hugely popular at this time. And as a result, a lot of drivers were trying to make as many races as they could because of the popularity of sport, but also because there was money to be made. The sport was just awash in money at this time. I think, as I recall, you probably have more sponsored cars in the Cup and the Bush Series at this time than at most any other time. And so there was a chance for guys to make more races, and more of them entered those races. Well, as a consequence of that, more of them did not qualify because you had more cars to enter than you had spots in the field. So naturally, guys were going to go home. Here's how much money there was in the sport at that time. Winston Cup scene was making enough money to pay for my Chinese buffets every week. <laughs> <laughs> and we took a heavy hit on that. <laughs> Kevin had qualified for each and every race. The finishes weren't exactly spectacular, but even making the race, as I mentioned earlier, even making the starting grid was an accomplishment. And Kevin had driven for David Riddling in Atlanta as a fill-in role. And then at Bristol, they talk again, and Kevin winds up driving for David the rest of the 1996 season, and the results were pretty much immediate. That team clicked right off the bat. He got 10 top 10 finishes with that team, including a fourth at Myrtle Beach, a second at Michigan, and finally, a win in the season finale. That's quite a change from a guy who announced to his team. They were going to run seven races, and that was going to be it. Now, this is quite a turnaround. Amazing if you look at it. Well, I think Kevin made a name for himself just qualifying. Sure. Like we discussed, it was difficult just making the grid. But getting a victory. Now, that's even more notable because we have heard in the past that drivers get a rep as a good qualifier, but don't do much in the race. Well, Kevin, this time out, did quite the opposite. Qualifying well and winning a race and having a very good season. We're going to talk more about the Homestead win in depth in our second segment, but here's what Kevin had to say about the aftermath of Homestead. He said in a way that he almost wished that he hadn't won that race because here's what happened, according to Kevin. David wanted to start another team after winning at Homestead and one thing led to another and he and David parted ways late in the 1997 season. Now that's one thing drivers and teams going their separate ways. That happens basically every day, but I mean, he had me spun out and half turned over when he told me about David Riddling's legal trouble and him being in jail right now. I did not know that. No, I certainly didn't either. Now, I knew David, knew him well during his time in the Bush Series, and he, <laughs> he was one of my go-to guys on a slow news day, <laughs> and he and his wife, Karen, went on Morgan Shepard's Christmas trip one year, but sure enough, last October, he pled guilty to a $40 million fraud scheme, and this February, he was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. I had no idea. My thoughts and prayers are with David. I hope everything turns out okay. I hope he comes through this as well as can be expected. But Kevin, he floored me on that one. I had no <laughs> idea whatsoever about that going on. That's one that completely blew me away. But then Kevin leaves David Ridley and he gets a Winston Cup ride with Joe Falk. And then Jack Roush comes calling. And I thought it was a pretty cool story when Kevin was talking about his homestead win that night, he and his team went out to dinner to celebrate, and Jack actually sent over a cake congratulating Kevin on the win. So I thought that was pretty classy of Jack. Well, indeed, and it's pretty obvious that uh, Kevin had caught Jack's eye, for sure. In the Bush Series race at Homestead that Kevin won, he beat not only Bobby Labonte, he also beat Mark Martin and Roush Racing. And uh, listen, at that time, beating Mark Martin anywhere in the Bush Series was absolutely a victory. Knowing that, it doesn't surprise me that Jack indeed took an interest in Kevin. 
his first race with Roush Racing was at Michigan. And the next race weekend, they go to Bristol. Kevin wins the Bush Series race, driving for Doug Taylor. And then he finishes 10th on the lead lap in the cup race. So everything is clicking. Everything is going the way that it should. According to Kevin, the Tuesday after the Bristol weekend, Jack tells Kevin and his crew chief, James Entz, that from there on out, information on springs, shocks, and sway bars would be confidential between the teams, but everything else would still be fair game. In other words, if Mark Martin and Jeff Burton found something when it came to shock springs and sway bars, they could keep it to themselves. And supposedly, if Kevin and James found anything on shocks, springs, and sway bars, they could keep it to themselves. Now, I don't know what happened. I wasn't a part of this. I wasn't on the inside, but let's just say that evidently things didn't get any better from there on out. And I think we best leave it to that. <laughs> well, that seems to me a very hard set of rules. Now, didn't Jack Roush have about five teams at this time? Yeah. How are you going to enforce all that between five teams? And there's another thing. How do you know that all guys on those five teams are going to go along with this? I mean, this is a tough rule to follow. I'll tell you what, with five teams, you're not going to keep everybody happy. No, you're not. That's just not possible. When you can't keep everybody happy, that means that not everybody's going to want to follow those rules. Well, I think everybody did follow them, and they took that as saying, well, we can keep whatever we want to ourselves. And, you know, I, I don't know. That's a good point. There definitely did seem to be an us against them vibe within that organization, especially. As we said, when there were five teams vying for attention. I agree. I think that's a proper conclusion to reach. Five teams with sets of rules, certain things you can share, certain things you can't share. I mean, that's a very awkward position to put a bunch of guys into. And obviously, I think Mark Martin was the top dog. Oh, yeah. And then there was Jeff Burton. And then there was probably everybody else. That ties in with the conclusion we've reached. You got the top dogs. How do you know what's going on between them and the rest of the guys, the other guys on the team? I think it's just a very convoluted situation, or rather, it can be a very convoluted situation. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the November 7th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup scene. The Winston Cup division was off that weekend going into the season finale in Atlanta. And there was an overview story on the championship battle between Terry Labonte and Jeff Gordon, who just so happened to both be driving for Hendrick Motorsports. (laughs) (laughs) Very unusual situation. (laughs) I'm sure that created an interesting dynamic. But in this package of stories, there was a story on Rick Hendricks' perspective on the championship. And Rick said, yeah, I'm the father of this deal. The good news is it's working. The better news is that my drivers are being real pros. They're not letting people get them stirred up. We've had letters that Terry's motors were sabotaged so Jeff could win and vice versa. People will try to tear down anything that's working. I keep telling them that. I'm just as proud of the fact that these guys have kept their heads, work together, and still share information. They're not going to go over and say, hey, this works great. This helped me get into the race. But if one of them is struggling, they'll talk to each other. Now, Rick had it very lucky in this particular situation. 
He's right when he says that Jeff and Terry were pros. Not only were they pros on how their teams conducted themselves between them, they were pros on the track. Now, when a driver is on the track, he knows there is some time for give and take. All right? Well, these guys obviously knew what give and take meant. I don't think at any time during that season did they threaten each other on the track. Rick told me point blank one time, he says, look, I can understand how they're trying to behave on the track. They're trying to win the race. They're trying to make points, and they're trying not to get in each other's way. Now, if they get out there and race hard between themselves and take both of them out, I'm going to be very upset because that's not how you do it. However, (laughs) with that being said, (laughs) there was a third feature in this issue on the championship battle, and this one was on the crew chiefs involved. Gary Dehart for Terry Labonte and, of course, Ray Evernham with Jeff Gordon. (laughs) And Ray said in this story, Gary and I have never really shared notes weekly or anything. The only time we ever helped one another is when we needed help. His cars are built differently in a separate shop. Gary and I communicate only when we need to. We've each always been doing our own separate thing. Nothing has really changed for us. We just happen to be racing one another at this point. So yeah, if I'm reading that and Ray says that in this story, I think it was every man for himself at this point. Well, I think it was when it came to building carpets. You notice what Ray said? He said, we only talk to each other when we need help. Now, if that was true, building cars separately, that's one thing. But if you go to a rival crew chief who's on the same team to get help, that's very important as far as I'm concerned. If they were really doing that and really helping each other, that helped the total cause. Rick Hendrick had a word of caution for team owners who were considering building more than one car. And again, this was before really the advent of multi-car teams was as big as what it became. Rick said in this story, people jumping into the multi-car concept are going to find out it's not as easy as they think. If they're doing it with people who don't really believe in it, but don't have an option and don't have a say, it'll be more of a distraction and work against them rather than be an asset. And Steve, I got to say, no truer words have ever been spoken on this podcast. If you had a multi-car team at that time, everybody had to buy into it. We've already discussed that. And when discussing Kevin's situation at Rouse Racing, that was the conclusion we pretty much reached about everybody being on board. And I don't think that was the situation over at Roush. There was another feature in this issue on hot prospects in the sport. It mentioned some guy by the name of Tony Stewart. Whatever became of him? Ah, he was just a match in the wind. (laughs) (laughs) You said that. I didn't. (laughs) Well, we know what happened to him. (laughs) Kevin LePage captured the Bush Series win at Homestead while Randy LaJoy came back from an early race incident to clinch the championship over David Green, we've heard time and time again in the closing laps of a race, especially with somebody who's about to win the first race of their career. We've heard people say, Oh, I heard this car making this noise and I thought it was fixing to fall apart. I I thought the tires was fixing to blow. I thought the engine was fixing to blow, but Kevin was asked if he had heard his car making any crazy sounds late in the race. And Kevin said, all I heard was those champagne bubbles. <laughs> great answer. Great answer. <laughs> Later, he continued, they told me if I won this race, I was going to get a new Monte Carlo. About the 10th lap, we were talking about what color. We've had our problems. I'm a hard-headed Yankee, and I think this is just the beginning of working out our personalities. Do you think a guy is pretty confident about winning a race? When he starts to talk about the color of the car, he's going to get. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I, I would probably want to be keeping my mind on business, but hey, that's just me. The championship was the second in a row for base motorsports and team owner Bill Baumgartner after Johnny Benson had won it in 1995. Randy and Bill would also win the Bush Series championship together the following year in 1997 and Steve in the qualifying race, 
the day before, Mike Laughlin Jr. was involved in a really, really, really bad fire coming off turn four. He was taken by helicopter to Miami and was in intensive care for a couple of days before being transferred to a private room. And Steve, that was after Stevie Reeves and Derek Cope had also been involved in pretty fiery crashes in turn four during practice the day before the qualifying race. I can't imagine anything worse than being involved in a fire in a race car. That I talked to Robert Calicut, who's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. And of course, Robert Calicut was Richard Petty's gas man when he was involved in a really bad fire while pitting the car in Atlanta in 1989. And, and the photos of that and the photos of Mike Laughlin Jr.'s accident, they're just, Steve, they're horrifying. Well, you know, Rick, I've always believed in fact, I've been told by drivers themselves a few times that the greatest fear they have is fire in a wreck. That is absolutely the greatest fear drivers have. And I can understand that. Steve, I can't make light of that. But in my mind, the two scariest situations would either be fire or drowning. That's just always been a, a fear of mine. <laughs> and Tiger Tom pissed on, according to legend, when he drove at Daytona, he had a scuba set <laughs> in his car in case he went into Lake Lord. <laughs> That's called being prepared. <laughs> My column in this issue was about autograph seekers and how they can sometimes go a little or a lot overboard. <laughs> Terry Labonte wrecked during practice at Phoenix in late 1996 as he was fighting for the Winston Cup championship. And there he was, and I was there. I saw the whole thing unfold. And there he was sitting on pit wall, holding the left hand that he had literally just broken. He got out of the car, came over, sat down on pit wall, and he was holding his hand. And he was looking at the car, and I'm sure going through his mind was, what's going to happen now? While he's sitting there trying to collect himself, this guy came up to him and tried to get him to sign an autograph. And Terry didn't sign or even acknowledge the guy, which should have been the end of it. Well, after they got Terry onto a cart that was going to take him to the Enfield Care Center, this guy started chasing the cart <laughs> and kept going until the cart finally got too fast for him and they couldn't chase it anymore and it got away from him. What's more, after this column came out, I actually heard from the guy and he tore into me like there was no tomorrow. He basically said that I just didn't understand the plight of people like him who had to take advantages of their limited opportunity for autographs. Now, Steve, I understand being a fan, but doggone it, man. <laughs> understand common sense and discretion. Well, a driver who's injured after a wreck and is sitting there, I don't think that's a fair game when it comes to an autograph whatsoever. I think the rule of thumb that I've always encouraged fans to follow is if you're lucky enough to get to a place where you can get a driver's autograph, do it when the driver is free to do so. By that, I mean, don't try to interrupt him when he's trying to practice. That's one thing. And don't try to interrupt him when he gets out of a car and he's not in a good mood. Otherwise, he will sign for you. There's no question about that. But Rick, what do you do? I mean, fans are fans and we love them. No question about it. But sometimes they just get over enthusiastic and request autographs when things are just not in the right situation for the driver. What's the craziest sight that you've ever seen when it comes to an autograph seeker? <clears throat> well, how do I phrase this? I know it was not at a regular autograph session. It was at a track. There was a group of uh, young ladies who were <laughs> prowling the pits. And one of them saw a driver, who I shall not name, and she was very enthusiastic. Now, she did ask for an autograph at the right time because that driver was really not doing anything. Now, what made this different was where... She wanted that autograph. Oh, dear. This ain't I, that kind of podcast, Steve. <laughs> well, well <laughs> I thought she was going to have him autograph the T-shirt she was wearing. 
but no. Uh, she pulled that T-shirt up just enough and asked the driver to sign somewhere in the chest area. Well, the driver did so. And he turned around and looked at me with a big old grin on his face while he was doing it. <laughs> okay. My story is kind of pale in comparison to that. <laughs> I've seen people follow Dale Earnhardt into the bathroom at a racetrack wanting an autograph. And then there's a pretty legendary story of somebody asking Harry Gant for an autograph while he's in the process <laughs> of using the bathroom. <laughs> I can tell you right now, old Harry isn't the only one to be caught in that situation. <laughs> Steve, what's the funniest story about somebody asking you for your autograph? Pretty much like Terry's story, only I wasn't obviously in a wreck or anything. I just finished a broadcast on the stage at Atlanta Motor Speedway, and I got into a cart to be taken back to the parking area, and this lady uh, asked me for an autograph, and she held out a a pad and a pen. And when I went reach for it, the cart took off. I'm holding her pad <laughs> and pen in my hand and she's disappearing in, in the distance. <laughs> you stole so her I, autograph book. <laughs> I, I signed it and held it up and waved it to her as she was fading in the distance and just threw it back in her direction. Hopefully she got to it and picked it up, but that's the craziest one that ever happened to me. <laughs> All right. So I'm from Nashville, Tennessee originally. And my son, Richard from my first marriage was living in Nashville. And so that made any time I went back to Nashville for a race pretty special. And Richard got to go with me. Well, this one time there was a Bush series party on the river. All the drivers were signing autographs and I was taking Richard around, introducing him to all the drivers and everything. Well, I had on my Winston cup scene jacket. And this fan came up to me and he said, are you Rick Houston? I said, yes, sir. He said, I love your stuff. Love your stuff. And I, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. He said, would you sign my poster? And Richard was standing there watching the whole thing. And yeah, this guy's asking me for an autograph in front of my son. I'm going <laughs> to score some brownie points and I'm going to act like a big shot. So I took the guy's poster. And I start to sign it. <laughs> and Richard looks at the guy and goes, what do you want his autograph for? He's not famous. <laughs> <laughs> That'll deflate your ego. <laughs> Bubble burst. <laughs> Steve, there was a photo bio in this issue on NASCAR official Tim Earp. And it was noted that he was in fact related to Wyatt Earp of shootout at the OK Corral fame, which just led me to wonder when I saw this photo bio, I wonder if Tim gets a cut of all that crap. I mean, all those souvenirs that they sell in Tombstone. <laughs> Better yet, I wonder if Tim got a cut of the profits of the movie Tombstone. <laughs> uh, this is Morgan Shepard, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we got one of the most amazing emails this week from Charles Hall. I am constantly blown away by the support that we get from our listeners. I mean, it is just amazing. Well, Charles has an interest not only in NASCAR, but NASA. Ah, this guy's <laughs> going to be your friend real quick. <laughs> Who else do we know like that? <laughs> but he wrote us the nicest letter, and here it is. Rick and Steve, while I wasn't a subscriber to scene, I definitely knew about it. I grew up going to both Darlington races most years. I got lucky to attend the one hot night in Charlotte. I was a Richard Petty fan before I had ever been to a race in person. I quickly became a DW fan with his Daytona 500 win. I was such a DW fan that when we got tickets to the Southern 500 via my dad's job selling Pennzoil, I almost refused to go because I was forbidden <laughs> because I was forbidden from wearing my DW gear <laughs> to meet Michael. 
I was born with a physical disability that has led me to spend a life in and out of the hospital. My two escapes from the mental stress of the hospital has and always will be auto racing and space flight. As a kid, there was a particular hospitalization I will never forget. I was eight. That previous April, dad, my great uncle Sam, and I attended the Trans South 500 at Darlington. Dad worked for safety clean at the time and was responsible for placing the parts washers in the garage area. As part of the deal, the Columbia office had received infield tickets to the race. Dad and I were walking out of the tunnel in the real turn three. While walking out, this gentleman stopped and asked my dad if he could send us some sports memorabilia for me. While I was in the hospital recovering from surgery, a package arrived from him. In that box was a plethora of Bill Elliott memorabilia, plus a couple of football jerseys from the Steelers. The other reason that hospital stay is stuck in my memory was that a package arrived from my great uncle Tom, who worked as an engineer with NASA at the Cape. In that package was a signed picture from the crew of STS-26, the return to flight after Challenger. I write this note of thanks because the last couple of years have been rough health-wise. A few things have gotten me through them. One is the Scene Vault podcast. Another is SpaceX. A couple of others are some other Dirty Mo Media podcasts. I'm a huge history buff. The trip down memory lane that the Scene Vault podcast brings is the one that brightens my breakfast time every Wednesday morning. My Wednesday morning is coffee time with Scene, so to speak. I just want to say thanks. So, Charles, I am completely blown away by that. Thank you so much. Yes, Charles, thank you so much. And from Rick and I, just be well. Thank you very much. No, you're the one who didn't tell me what to do in this situation. <laughs> well, I wasn't telling you what to do. Todd was. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not anybody to tell anybody else what to do on their soundboard at all. I know how to turn the volume up. That's about it. That's about it for me too. <laughs>